0: Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer Jim dunigan Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author Austin Bay. Welcome Austin and Jim thought we'd talk a little bit about an interesting relationship quadrangle that's going on in, uh, or actually maybe even, uh, uh, you know... Uh a quintangle <laughs> a quintangle is probably the best, Is it's a dangle is that we've got Russia and Israel and Syria and Iran and uh, and just to throw things in there for fun Turkey, all involved in the same area uh, with different goals and uh, different uh, things that they want to do Russia is sort of the, Russia and the Israel Relationship is an interesting one because they're more or less allied, and Russia does not want Iran attacking Israel. it wants Iran wants to attack Israel on the from the border of Syria. Uh, now we've got this new thing up in the north. well, it's not a new thing, but it's the final culmination of the rebels getting uh, devastated in in Syria up in the north where now turkey is is heavily in the mix and so it's just this boiling cauldron of of chaos jim what oh <laughs> can, can you give us some explanations to what's going on and and what may happen all right
1: the basically it comes down to the fact that uh, well, everybody, most everybody in the Middle East agreed that the Assad regime were a bunch of homicidal tyrants and the rebellion might be a good thing. Uh, the rebellion got off to a bad start and uh, basically the rebels could not get united. And uh, a lot of them turned to Islamic terrorism, uh, which did not uh, work out well. Uh, the Assads had survived, you know, since the you know 60s and 70s. Uh, by being opportunistic. In the 1980s they were basically at the, how should I put it, a a cold war with Iraq because they had been united as two branches of the Ba'ath party up until you know the the Iraq decided to attack uh, Iran and the Assad said well actually before that they broke over various matters Um, but at that point Assad who was a Shia said hmm there's an opportunity here uh, he basically, you know, betrayed his, his Arab loyalties, as it were, by becoming a uh, an ally or a client, as it were, of uh, of Iran, and that gave. Uh, and when the civil war in Lebanon ground to a halt in nineteen ninety, uh, the Assad's provided all the help Iran needed uh, to establish Hezbollah as a major force, indeed, the dominant force in Lebanon. Uh, so this. Dave, uh Iran uh you know, a, a, a skin of the game as it were. They were now a player uh on Israel's border, but they could not do anything with it. I mean they tried Hezbollah got involved in a couple of you know uh little wars uh and they didn't really, you know, accomplish anything. Um and then and then along came the uh, uh uh, the, 2000, the 2011 Arab Spring and the Rebellion in, in, Syria, in, in Syria. And uh, Iran saw an opportunity to basically do to uh, Syria what he had done in uh, Lebanon by creating a large uh, Shia uh, pro-Iran, supported by Iran, Shia militia, which would in effect be the dominant military force in the country. Now, the Assads didn't want that. And that was known from the, from the from the beginning, but they had no choice uh, because uh, over the next after the revolution began, Iran began pouring billions and billions and billions uh, of dollars a year into keeping his government and his armed forces alive. Uh, the Russians got involved because they also saw an opportunity. Uh, Syria had been an old customer from the Cold War days, uh, and sort of gave you know Russia the prestige. Of being involved, as it were, in Middle Eastern politics. I know what sane government would want to be in, uh, go out of their way to be involved in Middle Eastern politics. It's hard to say, but we're talking about Russia here, so anything goes. Uh, So he intervened, uh, basically with the cooperation of Iran and uh, and Turkey. Uh, Well, Turkey was less enthusiastic, but the Turks did not want. Uh, a hotbed of of, uh, of civil war and especially Islamic terrorism uh, on their border. And they didn't like the way the Kurds were getting, the Syrian Kurds were becoming, you know, autonomous and perhaps independent. Uh, So already you see the, you know, the sort of quasi, you know, not all in allies, but they had mutual interests. And they sort of got together. And of course, at this point, the, the Russia was declaring the, the Cold War revived, and, and everybody had to, uh, basically, they had to form a coalition to oppose the NATO, and especially the United States, which, of course, was trying to take over the world. You know, the, you know, Russia never seems to get the point that most people in the United States came to get away from all the involvements, you know, stuff like that in Europe. But anyway, they never got the memo. And... They, again, accused the United States of, of basically trying to surround Russia and do whatever it is. It's never been clear exactly what they thought our end game in Russia was. Uh, and, uh, and he basically you know, was re- reimposing the police state in Russia. Um, and he thought this would be a splendid idea to get involved in uh, basically saving Assad from being defeated in this, in this rebellion. Uh, and he got and he his his in- his influence was was uh extremely useful because the assads had very little air power air support the their air their air force had been had been running down since the cold war ending, and russia could no longer give them uh generous terms as it were for new weapons uh Iran tried to do that, but they were having you know they were under uh, sanctions and so the Iranian and the and the Israelis noted with uh, with satisfaction that the Iranian threat to their northern, you know, border, uh, all those missiles and tanks and aircraft uh, were rapidly aging into obsolescence. So the Syrian armed forces were not in great shape in 2011 when this all began. And they rapidly, you know, after about a few years, like, you know, 70 percent of the Air Force were... Aircraft and planes were, were un- un- inoperable, and those that were operational couldn't operate as much as they were needed. So, Russia basically brought in their own aircraft uh, as a basically a marketing tour to show you hey, look at all our new stuff. You know, good prices, cash up front. Um, and, uh, but most importantly, they brought in their, their technicians and spare parts uh, and some new equipment uh, for the Syrian army. Uh, and this was a big shot in the arm. One of the more important things they brought in, which doesn't get much publicity, was they revitalized the uh, Syrian military medicine, medical uh, services, because the, one of the problems the Syrians were having with their holding their army together was they didn't have you know medical support. They got money from Iran. But Iran couldn't supply a lot of the military equipment, uh, which, again, Iran didn't have much of, which the Russians could. And even though a lot of the stuff the Russians were pouring in, including our Soviet ammunition, was Cold War era, it didn't make any difference. It was a big change. Suddenly, there was an abundance of equipment, there was an abundance of spare parts, there was some new equipment, there were Russian trainers and advisors uh, although the Russians probably learned as much from the combat you know, experienced Syrians as the other way around. Um, and, you know, suddenly the Syrians were taking back territory. Uh, the, the Syrians and Russians also had the same attitude towards the rules of engagement. If civilians got in the way, you kill them. I mean, that's something that is a no-no in the West. Uh, but in many parts of the world, that's, that's simply, you know, uh, SOP. That's the way you do it. Uh, so, what they did do, again, local customs, was many times they would surround a, 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 a town or a village and they, they basically had the rebels cut off, or more or less cut off, and they would make a deal. they you, say, look, uh, if you evacuate to Inland, that's a province up by the Turkish border, northwest, uh, we will give you safe passage, and the Russians were important with that because the Russians basically supervised this. A lot of times the rebels, for good reason, didn't trust the Syrians to uh, guarantee the safe passage because it was a not a hundred percent guaranteed safe passage if the Syrians were running it. But once the Russians got involved, they sent in their own military police. A lot of times they were Chechens, but that's another story. Uh, they were Muslims, and um, they uh, they basically got more and more rebel uh, enclaves to surrender rather than fight to the death. Now, the civilians, the women and children, they were fine with this. They, they were not as radical as the, as the, uh, as the Islamic terror, uh, members of the Islamic terror groups. Um, and, of course, as it turned out, a lot of the uh, people in the Islamic terror scripture were not that fanatical either. So it served everybody's interest for, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, uh, of these uh, Islamic terrorist rebels and, their, and, and civilians to move under safe passage up to Idlib. You know, the, the Syrians provided buses and trucks and whatever. Um, and there they were dumped. And, of course, the U.N. and mainly the United States provided, you know, aid, medical ethical aid, the usual aid, through, uh, through uh, you know, NGOs and what have you. Um, and that's where they were supported. And everybody basically said, we'll take care of this later. Well, later is now. Uh, the only uh, rebel enclave left is Idlib province. And, and basically the Turks do not want it be taken by force, because even though they have strengthened their border, uh, literally the wall, uh, troops, landmines, you name it, uh, along, you know, uh, in the uh, province uh, and, in Turkey, uh, they know that if, you know, a million uh, or at least a hundred, several hundred thousand, and possibly a million or more of these Syrians are going to try and flee into Turkey. And the Turks do not want the pictures of Turkish troops, you know, shooting down, you know, fellow Muslims. Simply trying to get away from even worse Muslims, uh, and uh, the uh, the Russians sort of agree with them because they're again trying to stay on the right side of Turkey. They're trying to sell them uh, billions of dollars in, in weapons and what have you. So it's good customer relations to sort of you know uh, go along with your 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 potential customers' foreign policy. Uh, the Russians would just as soon see all the you know all the uh, the Islamic terrorists killed, uh, but that's, that's something they're willing to you know negotiate on. Israel, in the meantime, and Iran are locked in a, for better term, death match. Uh, 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 Iran has been basically saying for decades death to Israel Israel must be destroyed. Now this sounds completely irrational, and many Iranians have come to realize. Why are we doing this? I mean, several times a year, it's mandatory for a lot of Iranians to get out the street and say, death to America, death to Israel. Uh, death to America thing was, was never, you know, uh, they never had their hearts in it because if they had the opportunity, they they go to the American embassy, which has not been theirs, so to speak, since 1980s, uh, um, and, and try and get a visa to immigrate to America. A lot of them did it anyway through third parties. But, you know, America was seen as a friend of Iran. But the Islamic, uh, the Islamic uh, government in, in Iran does not see it that way. Uh, that, again, is another story. And that is, causing, that is causing them a lot of grief, especially now, because now they're face-to-face with Israel, and Israel is defeating them at every turn. Uh, they, had, they are constantly being bombed, they're, you know, their facilities in, in Syria, uh, and, uh, and it's humiliating. They cannot do anything to hurt Israel. I mean, it's not for want of trying. They just have not got the means. So the current plan is, all right, we'll get control of Syria the way we did uh, Lebanon, which the Lebanese, the majority of Lebanese do not like, uh, and and the Assad's and the majority of Syrians uh, do not like. Israel does not like. Turkey does not like either. Um, But they're less vocal about it. Uh, the Russians really don't care. They just don't want their customers to uh, go you know, out of business and be unable to order more Russian weapons or to make Russia look good as a peacemaker, et cetera, et cetera. So there you have it. Uh,
0: now, Jim, you- is it one of the things that uh, Russia wants, too, is they want to have a port uh, that they can... <clears throat> that they can uh, be active from on the Syrian coast,
1: yes, yes, and they have the part of uh, they they basically signed a deal before the revolution, and <laughs> they had to stop for a while, but yes, if there's a new Syrian government which is uh, which is unlikely now one way or the other, uh, they already have signed uh, agreements to give them a large air base up north uh, in the northern of uh, Syria and uh, and a, a naval facility. At TARDIS Air Base, which is under, which is basically being built up, as it were. And they have their largest, they have something like 25 or 30 uh, uh, Russian uh, Navy ships off the uh, Syrian coast right now. But the, Rus- the, the, and this basically, the Russians, the Syrians, and the Israelis don't want to fight each other. Uh, it sounds odd coming from the, from the Syrians, but the Syrians, like the Egyptians, if they had a chance... They would have made peace. I mean, they're ticked off about the Golan Heights and what have you, but they're they they're being realistic now. The their 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 enemy, the Syrian's enemy, is basically Iran. But they can't say that because Iran has bailed them out again and again. So they have to go through the motions, convincingly, Of course, this is to show that hey, yes, we we are your 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 uh, your thankful allies, uh, and and we will do whatever we can. But at the same time, the Syrians are quietly, you know, letting it be known to Turkey and, to, and even to Israel. But that's that, that's done deep, very deep cover, usually through Russia. Uh, that, you know, we do not really want to get involved in a war between, uh, you know, basically a war where uh, Iran is trying to attack Israel. Because they could tell the Iranians, which doesn't do much good, uh, that that doesn't work. Uh, these, the, you know, the Israelis have nukes. Uh, now, and, they, and the Israelis, uh, earlier this year, they embarrassed the Iranians a great deal by stealing their, their archive of nuclear research you know, activities. Um, and in fact, it recently came out that the, uh, the Israeli government, uh, in the middle of the planning for this operation, they said, look, forget about photographing key documents and making it look like, you know, you never got in there. Take original stuff, the disks, the documents, whatever. We want to prove to the world, which is you with know, Vietnam, that this is the real deal. This is not sort of some sort of false flag, you know, uh, document uh, deal. Um, and they act. And, and, of course, the Iranians deny that it ever happened, but they do that for a lot of things. So the problem is everybody is against Iran, including most of the Iranian people, because now with the sanctions coming back in, the, you know, the, the, the efforts of the, uh, the uh, you know, the Islamic dictatorship to uh, uh, to basically uh, make the Iranian people plead that happy days are here again, you know, it's, it's three years after the, the sanctions started flipping, and things have not improved for the average Iranian. And, of course, they, the government, information leaked out of the government, how, how surprising is that, uh, to about the extent of how much money... The government is spending on, on not just the defense budget, which is up to about $15 billion a year now, which isn't the biggest in the, in the Middle East, but when you add in the money they're spending on uh, overseas wars, it's over $50 billion. It's one of the largest uh, defense budgets uh, in, in, the, in the region. No other country in the region spends anything like that or any per- proportion of their, their defense spending on foreign wars. Uh, in in the entire Middle East. It just isn't done. I mean, there's some hanky-panky, you you, you know, with the neighbors and what have you, but it's small change compared to what the Iranians are doing, and now the Iranian government has a huge problem because the Iranian people are aware of that, and so the the, the, uh, senior clerics are basically scrambling to find a way out of that, and that's why... (laughs) Nobody looking at this. Everybody sees this. Is why you don't want them to get nukes? Because if they get cornered, if they feel cornered, they'll start making nuclear threats. They can't do that yet. They can threaten with ballistic missiles. They can threaten with uh, ordering Hezbollah to, you know, all right, launch hundred thousand smaller missiles at Israel, et cetera, et cetera. But they can't. They can't launch the big one, as it were. Uh, and so this basically has dug Iran into an even deeper hole and uh, Israel and Russia and, and, like I say, Syria and Turkey, it's four to one. They all want Iran to back off, and the only people who are basically telling the Iranian government directly to back off are their own people. So there you have it. So, Austin,
2: what's your take on all of this? Okay, I t- I'm going to take it from a slightly different tactic, and I will get into discussing why the Russians... Want that name base. There's some other reasons, but uh, look, Syria is a both a geographic and uh, demographic mosaic. As as a matter of fact, there was a a National Defense University study on Syria. I want to say it was written in the 1980s, and the title of it was Syria: Fragile Mosaic. Uh, Meaning all these fragments, everybody thinks about how fragmented uh bosnia uh was or is still is with uh, uh, croats bosniaks and uh, and serbs uh, for, and a few Hungarians uh, as well but uh, the, the, at least those three primary the, the, the serbs bosniaks and and Croats were southern slavs and uh but in, in Syria and I mean this literally it's going to sound. Uh, I sound a bit crazy. It was it, it's a big Lebanon. You, everybody sees how fragmented Lebanon is into confessor cantons, you know, like there were Swiss cantons, here are the Christians, there's another flavor of Christian, here's uh Shias. here's some Sunnis, here's some Druze and and and, and, and the like. They're all, all kind of mixed together. Well, Syria is, is look, it, Syria is greater Lebanon or Lebanon is lesser. Lesser Syria, they're the heart of of the Levant, and if you drop a eh, border down, uh, Haifa's 11, 11 uh, town, and the way the Romans looked at at uh, at the area, it, it continued on in into the inter- interior, uh, but there, but definitely Syria with uh, uh, its the uh, chief port, Latakia, and Antioch. Antakya, which is a Turkish city now, was was Levantine. And you've got a, a grand mix there of of ancient Phoenicia. You've got Ottoman leftovers. If you want to look at the Ottoman Empire, in this sense, <coughs> World War One isn't quite over, and Syria is a, a, an example of it. But uh, uh, Jim started chuckling about this, but he knows it's accurate. Byzantine and Roman leftovers, and perhaps Hittite leftovers, if you want to really get back to it. <laughs> Pull that one out, 1500 BC, uh, 2000 BC. And part of it has to do with the fact that there's, there are small, rugged little mountains in there, and you get up with the hillbilly effect, uh, which you see in, in, in the Balkans, and Afghanistan may be the ultimate I- I- example of it. It's also been a place where uh, defeated peoples or small groups would seek refuge, and now you're left with this you know, strange agglomeration. And all right, so now I've, I've, I've set, set, that, uh, set that up. Uh, I'll talk briefly just about, about Turkey. Turkey really had a problem in 2011 with all this violence breaking out on its southern border, but not they've, they've had violence along that border forever, and they, including incursions. Into uh, northern Iraq to fight the Kurdistan Workers Party (PKK). <clears throat> they may even made a couple of moves into Syria and threatened other threatened other ones to uh, deal with uh, the Syrian subsidiary of the PKK. Supposedly, the YPD, which is one of the reasons that uh, the the, the, Ter- the Turks don't don't trust the YPD, even though the United States has made Common cause with a lot of the Syrian, uh, with a lot of the Syrian Kurds, but now they had a war where there were uh, initially tens of thousands, and then eventually hundreds of thousands of refugees flooding into southern Turkey. And many of these—they're not the you know the poor and 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 absolute de- destitute that you see in many cases. This is Syrian middle class. So, which made it easier in some ways, but also made it harder, in, 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 in some odd ways. Because you educated people, and well, we don't want to go back. What are you going to do with us? Uh, it was a, a, a real a, a real problem. And, well, we, we've talked about, uh, you know, Sultan Rajib Rajib Tayyip Erdogan, um, now president, and I call him neo-dictator. Neil Sultan, like this of uh, of Turkey, he had made all these comments about Turkey's own independent role and the like. It was a lot of rhetorical grandiosity, and then suddenly there's this huge problem. Uh, there are a lot of things that Turks didn't want to risk a war, but they also ultimately here's here's something where the uh, I think the Turks got right. They understood that refugee threat, which evolved into the, the migrant problem, Dan. Uh, Part of it into uh, into the rest of uh, rest of Europe. Uh, at, at one point, uh, Erdogan wanted to invoke NATO Article Five because there was shooting by Assad's troops at refugees as they were as they'd already crossed the border into Turkey. Uh, that's that's how serious they took it. Plus, again, this is their along their coastal border too, Antakya, Antioch. Antioch dips down into Syria. In fact, is there's some latent Syrian claims to Antakya, because it was, didn't become part of Turkey until the late 1930s. 19, uh, 19, uh, 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 and it's a lot of Arab populations, and, and the, you know, a lot of Arab people live in that um, area of Turkey. But that was uh, their strategic cons- uh, considerations, as well as political considerations. And they're looking at this evolving mess, which gets to another part, and this I'm going to bring out, Jim. You know, we're essentially set up that it's five actors on this. They're really more than that. We mentioned some of the proxy players, but there are also some free agents. Some of these extremist Islamist uh, uh, global jihadists of the uh, of the Caliphate, and uh, they uh, they switch sides. They were never quite on Assad's side, as I could see, but they were certainly uh, part of the—contributed uh, to the violence. Uh, that includes the Islamic State, and there's still Islamic State fighters uh, uh, in inside Syria, which is one reason why you see—still uh, 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 have a, U- a U.S. presence. So that's—when I'm talking about all this mosaic, it's almost a kaleidoscope, except kaleidoscopes are organized. Well, there's organization to this too. Iran has used a number of these proxy actors, doing what Jim described: send them the money and advisors and weapons, in hopes to keep the place inflamed. And they've got this grand idea that there's going to be a Shia crescent running all the way from from uh, Iran through the, the uh, Shia populations and Arab uh, populations in uh, Iraq. All the way through Syria uh, to the Mediterranean, and realize that the Alawites, the Alawite sect that the Assad's belong to, is regarded as a Shia Islam sect. Now, Jim and I have written uh, gee, the first quick and dirty guide to war. We wrote that the the Alawites are really very syncretic. They they may have aspects of of Canaanite Baal worship, given some of the uh, studies that have been done about their quote-unquote, secret, secret practices. But under the greater panoply, they're Shia, uh, uh, Shia Muslims. So there was that connection with, uh, uh, with the Iranians and the uh, Iranian uh, ayatollahs uh, like that. But they went around and they, the, the Iranians have given a lot of small actors weapons and money to just keep the pot stirred. Now, Russia... Why does Russia want a naval facility? Well, there's another geographic one, consideration, and it's an old one. The Tsars wanted to break out of the Black Sea and get into the Med. That's why, you know, they're the third Rome. They wanted Constantinople could never take it. And this gives them a facility in the Mediterranean that can't be cut off by the Turks if the Turks close down the Bosporus and, and the Dardanelles. But that's, that's an old Goal. Uh, so, Actually, the Tsars have uh, had goals to the south, and in the uh, discussions that, that the Soviets have with the Germans before uh, World War II of Molotov-Von Rementrop uh, talks, uh, Molotov tells uh, the, the Germans that you know, Moscow has goals to the south, idea that it would break through, take Iran, and then get a port on the Indian Ocean. At least that's the way that that's that's read. These are old desires that still are expressed in the 21st century. I'm not being a historicist about it. You can you can see why here the Russians feel that they're you know they're the continental nation that just that can't can't reach the sea and for whatever the ideological complexities, they look and say, well wait a minute, that's a port, that's a big air base, uh, good. That puts us there. That's something we want. Well, do you really need it? Well, at some level, uh, they need it morally, morale-wise, psychologically, uh, and it, for Putin, it fits right into his his grandiose views of of, re, uh, of reasserting uh, Russian power uh, on the uh, global stage. Now, one thing about Israel, I've. I've I've seen the Israel has very very has vital security interests in Syria because that's been the contact point for Lebanese Hezbollah and remember the rocket wars that Hezbollah has launched especially two thousand six and Iran says it's it's the active front against Israel southern southern Lebanon and the Iranian supply uh, Hezbollah with. All kinds of rockets, uh, the they, Hamas in Gaza uh, as well, and of course, look look what the Iran does in Yemen. We've talked about that. Uh, short <laughs> and and uh, short to medium range ballistic missiles, with, that they uh, uh, attack Riyadh, used uh, to fire at Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, if the Iranians could do it, they'd put in a missile field in Yemen and use it to attack uh, Israel as well. Well, I. No, Israel sees, and this cauldron, this mess, an opportunity to weaken. I don't say destroy Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah, but severely weaken it. And part of Jim sketched the weakness that's been exposed in the Iranian regime. Uh, it's been suspected that it's there a long time. It's finally coming into play, and Lebanese Hezbollah without Iranian backup. Is a it's it's a frail relic, and I, 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 the Israelis would like to take them mm-hmm. off off the uh, off the table. The Israelis have also out of Syria. It's not just Syria. It's Iranian behavior. They've they've really strengthened ties with Jordan, and we've talked about their emerging quasi alliance with the Saudis because the Saudis now the Israelis can do some things for the uh, Gulf Arabs in in, in any confrontation with the Iranians, which gets back to Jim saying, ultimately, it's four to one. Nobody likes the uh, uh, Ayatollahs. And the last thing you want them to do is get a nuclear weapon. Uh, Also, uh, this was mentioned, but Syria was a Cold War Russian client, and Putin has made it clear, I, I think it was in part to distinguish is Russia from the Obama administration in America. Uh, Russia stands with its its friends. Uh, If it's a red line, we're going to enforce a red line. The thing is, though, is that the the Russians in Syria stepped across the line. We talked about it a little bit with that attack on that American position by their mercs in February of this year, and they got a dose of what second-decade, 21st-century American firepower is like. Well, that's the last thing I'll, I'll mention in this. Russia has used this as a place to uh, test some of its weapons, organizations, experiment with operations, lots of electronic intelligence uh, operations, try to learn about F-22s, f 35 signals and things and the like. But so has the United States, and it's, so have the Israelis. There's a, been, a, been a lot of learning, and I'm making stabs at what, what it is, but uh, I suspect over the next five or six years, we'll learn a lot about what was learned, and I'll leave it at that.
0: Jim, where do the Israelis and the Russians overlap in their... Why is there this interesting alliance between the two?
1: Well, for, for whatever reason. Uh, it's not, you know, for example, the, the Russians have always had a large relatively large, uh, you know, Jewish minority. They were badly treated, but a lot of the communists, you know, socialists and what have you, were, were Jews looking for, you know, a way to get out of their, their terrible situation. Uh, what the Russians uh, basically did was they were, they stayed on good terms with the Israelis. They were one of the first nations to recognize the state of Israel, and this cost them a lot of, uh, you know, clout, as it were, uh, cred, street dread in the Arab world, but the Arabs, you know, basically, you know, learned to swallow it. All right, that's the Russians crazy, you know, up north, all those long winters, those things for you. Um, and the second thing, the Russians and the Israelis maintained a, shall we say, a special relationship. It's not like the United States and Britain, but they had a thing, and they still have uh, before the uh, Putin went off the rails, invading you know Ukraine and Georgia and what have you, uh, the, um, uh, the the Israelis were one of the uh, Western nations that the Russians were coming to for uh, to buy techno- military technology, especially the manufacturing technology. Uh, the the uh, Israelis were willing to help them set up uh, plants, manufacturing up, uh, facilities to manufacture under license uh, Israeli UAVs. And other equipment, um, and and the Russians recognized this was something the Israelis could do and would do because of past experience. Now, the uh, while well, the the Russian intervention in Syria uh, promptly got them in uh, into minor fights with the Turks, who are anxious enemies with the Russians. Uh, there was no such, you know, how should I put it, the confrontation with the Israelis. The Israelis and Russians always had. Not just diplomatic relations, uh, but also they had ways of having you know third you know in the third country having you know uh, un-, un publicized discussions about this and that things they'd rather not you know go public. And this is where Iran, your know, frenemies like Iran and, and, and Turkey, and what have you come in. Um, it's also a way that the Americans can you know uh, uh, make uh, or shall I put it proposals to the Russians without making it public, go through the Israelis. They have connections. Uh, you know, They have somebody in Moscow or Instagram or whatever. Uh, so the Israelis, you know, this is how you survive in the Middle East or actually <laughs> anywhere. And the Israelis and the Russians have always had an understanding that they don't want to fight each other. And the Russians made a convincing case that there's no point to it. The Israelis are more advanced. They admire the Russian, you know, the Israeli uh, military capability. In the 1980s, as the as the uh, as the Cold War was you know uh, ending, uh, the Russians allowed an enormous number of uh, Russian Jews to migrate to Israel, uh, and uh, there were American you know good pro quo on that, um, and so as a result, you know one of the largest uh, minorities as it were in Israel are Russians. Uh, and, and and they 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 were tremendous uh, shot in the arm because a lot of the, the you know mostly the a lot of the uh, disproportionate number of the uh, Russian Jews had a good education. They were you know scientists, doctors, and what have you, and they were glad to get out of Russia. Uh, you know the collapsing you know Soviet state, and uh, they did very well in Israel. Uh, but they also kept in touch with the old country. They has still had family friends back there. And this connection basically, again, uh, created the the how should I put it the broad uh, you know uh, approval in both Israel and Russia for both countries to basically stay in touch, you know, to stay on good terms, and that's exactly what they've done. Uh, you know, you'll notice there's never been any shooting between Israelis and Russians. They had the discussion. Look, we won't do this. Yeah, you know, they basically hammer out a secret agreements. So, You know, that's why the Israelis are are, are making new uh, long-range air-launched missiles. So they don't have to go into Syrian airspace that is defended by uh, Russian, you know, air defense systems. They don't want to embarrass the Russians. You know, so so they try and keep their aircraft out of, uh, you know, Russian-defended airspace. Now, the Russians also understand that they don't want to go toe-to-toe with the Israelis because the Israelis would be forced— to basically show how inadequate the Russian air defense systems are. Actually, this has already been demonstrated, and it wasn't publicized in Israel, but it was certainly known in uh, in Syria uh, that there were a lot of attacks where uh, the older Russian air defense weapons in the Syria still have updated now, of course, uh, uh, were inadequate, and the apparently the Russian, you know, the modern ones, the S three hundred, the S four hundred systems. Uh, we're not operating at at the peak levels that the Russians' uh, sales brochures indicated they would. So the Russians would rather not publicize this particular angle in the in the industry. You know, people in the in the air defense manufacturing and, and user you know uh, community, they know that chances are, based on past performance, the Israelis have better countermeasures for Russian air defense systems than anybody will will outside of Israel uh, really wants to admit. Uh, That's why it's such a hard sell for these Russian systems, because if you get into a a confrontation with somebody who's on good terms with Israel, you're possibly in big trouble because your air defenses are compromised. If the Israelis are helping out, you know, bingo, your S-300s and S-400s are much less capable. So, the Russians and Israelis have a lot of reasons. For being, you know, uh, on good terms, which they continue to do. That's why the Russians have been going to bat for the Israelis without saying it. They're doing it for the Israelis uh, with the Iranians, trying to saying, "Look, you know, uh, you know, we're kind of outnumbered here. We, meaning you, Iran. You
0: know,
1: <laughs> the Iranians understand. You know, uh, uh, Russia has more allies in that part of the world than the Iranians do." Um, and uh, the problem in Iran is the Iranian people are understanding all this. You know, for a long time, the, you know, the, the, basically the, the, the Iranian government was issuing these, these, this outlandish to Western outsiders propaganda about new weapons systems that never got into production, uh, you know, uh, new economic policies that never got quite implemented. And, you know, the, the people in Iran put up with this for a long time. But now you got the, the majority of Iranians who were born after the revolution. Uh, and to them, the, the time of the, of the shahs and the monarchy are the good old days. And, you know, there were, bad, there were bad things about the shah, but they're forgotten. And all I can remember is, you know, we were better off when, the, when, the, when we had a monarchy. So what's with all this, this religious maniacs? Uh, and so basically their, their, their bad performance is catching up with the Iranians. And they're finding out, They don't have any real friends, and that includes the Russians.
0: Well, we've run out of time, so we'll uh, wrap it up there. Uh, We'll continue to watch uh, what's going up in the north on the Turkish border, uh, and uh, that's going to, I guess, play itself out over the next couple of weeks as the Syrian military gets ready to squash the last of the rebel strongholds. So uh, we'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Till then, bye. <laughs>